Welcome to Teaching Channel Talks. Every chance I get, I speak with expert educators about how to best address challenging issues in education. I'm your host, Wendy Amato, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Michael Moody. Welcome. Thanks, good to be here. Michael, you have an impressive set of credentials and publications and professional leadership, but I want to introduce you by sharing that you started out as a middle school teacher, plain and simple. What can you share about that? Well, that's my favorite title I've ever held. I could start there. Um, it was, you know, honestly, kind of teaching is what I was called to do. And it was in, in that work that I really started to understand kind of the need and what it really meant to be a good teacher. Um, and I, honestly, my whole career has been based on the fact that I think good teachers are where, it's, where the action's at. That's exactly how we can support kids and kind of create the outcomes that we expect to see. So um, I, you know, I really value kind of being a teacher and I, I, I feel like I'm still a teacher, despite the fact that I work mostly with adults these days, but you know, it's kind of always, it's, what's a teacher, always a teacher is who you are. I think it is central to your very being. So it's it not is. a surprise to hear you describing that. Can you, can you describe your educator path from the beginning? What, what how, how did you move through the ranks? Um, I, you know, I began my career very traditionally, kind of went through teacher prep programs um, and moved to uh, Oakland and started teaching there. Um, I started, like I said, as a middle school teacher, you know, back in the day, it didn't really matter if you were credentialed or not, kind of where the empty classroom was, was where the youngest teacher went. And that was my, what exactly happened to me. I was certified in English um, and I thought I was going to teach middle school English and I started teaching special ed math. Um, and I loved it, you know, surprisingly, I loved it a lot, um, more than I thought I would, given I was not super comfortable with the content when I started, but, um, you know, it allowed me to kind of just see a different side of the teaching kind of perspective or the, you know, kind of the, the teaching other side of the coin. And, and for an English teacher to teach math, you know, my, my family would laugh because they're like, huh, you weren't such a good math student, you know, surprise. but I actually think that really helped me become a pretty effective math teacher because I had been forced over my entire kind of life as a student to kind of figure it out or kind of teach myself. And so I think when I had to teach math, I probably had built some of those strategies out of necessity as a student myself and kind of, you know, those translated well. Um, I could also- Take anything for granted when you have to struggle to learn it yourself. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think that's quite relatable to students too. You know, when they're struggling, I think I understood kind of the struggle because I had felt it before. And I think in education, especially when you're a teacher, I found this, especially at secondary level too, we often teach in the content we're most comfortable with, right? I was an English teacher because I loved it. I loved writing as a kid and all those kind of things. And so when, you know, when I was forced, so it made sense that I would teach there, but I think there was something that felt quite natural about acquiring the content and the skills in, you know, reading English language arts. And so I don't know that I would have had the same eye toward instruction if I had started teaching English that I did with math, because I had to force myself to kind of think about the learning side of it, not just the content side of it. And so often, you know, as educators, we know the content so well, we just kind of launch into it without maybe giving the attention we need to, to, to the engagement piece, or, you know, what does it mean when you struggle? How do you, how do you grapple with the struggle productively to get out of the struggle and get to a place where you feel like you're getting a hold of the content? And that's why I love teaching math. I just, you know, you, I didn't know what I didn't know, but kind of as, as I grew out of, you know, grew, I then moved to third grade and then I moved to LA and started teaching fifth grade down here. And um, I just was really enjoying kind of the newness of different experiences and different grade levels. And 
I'm one who always, I think if I don't feel like I'm learning or kind of growing, I, I feel very dissatisfied. It's, I don't find myself sticking around. And so I think the challenge of new contexts and teaching different age students in different content areas really kind of pushed me to keep growing and keep learning. And then, you know, I started a charter school, became a charter school principal. I was the chief economic officer in Washington, DC. And I think, you know, I, I often refer to that as some of the most kind of profound and challenging years of my life because I, I didn't kind of take your traditional route from teacher to into a district office. Um, so when I was the CAO was really, it was really an opportunity for me to see if all the kind of theories and um, assumptions I made about how easy or hard it was as it's, you know, as a district administrator to kind of make things happen. I just had to put my money where my mouth was at that point and figure out like, is it as easy as you think it might be? And it's never as easy and, you know, districts are not easy at all. Um, but I learned a lot and I grew up a lot too in that role. And it also kind of gave me a much deeper appreciation for the coherence that's needed to make this work come alive for students. We had, we, work in silos in education a lot. And I think we rely on so much for teachers. And I think districts mean well, but they don't always do the best job of supporting teachers in ways that help them grow or continue to grow. And so, you know, I was really hoping that we could build an environment where we all were learners together. And so that's kind of been the mantra of every job I've had is like, how do I keep learning? Do I get to keep learning? And then how do we make sure that we're all oriented in that way? You've been quoted as saying high quality educators are the key to student success. And I want to ask, as opposed to what, like what else are people attributing student success to? I think there's, you know, I think there are assumptions about a lot of things. I think if I think outside of school building real quick, you know, I remember in the early days feeling like and hearing from colleagues, you know, many of those older than me, because I was a first year teacher saying, well, if this was happening in the home or if parents did this or, you know, the students are poor, you know, all these things that influence your beliefs about your students, quite frankly. And so I think one of the competing things around uh, kind of notions around or my, my comment is all the other stuff matters more than what's going on in a classroom or no matter how good you are in a classroom, you can't overcome all those things. I just don't believe that. And I think that, you know, over the years, I've learned that that's not true. Um, but it was definitely a belief I carried in as a very young teacher, trying to figure out, like, how do I have to overcome these things? And I think it's just a false way to think about it. Um, you know, the other th thing I would say to that is teachers are the only ones, really, who are teaching students, right? I never, when I was a principal, I wasn't working with students in that direct of a manner. When I was CAO, I definitely was, and I was pretty far removed. And although the goal was the same, I could do anything I wanted in the central office, but if it wasn't hitting teachers and they weren't kind of really leveraging whatever was going on to impact students, then it really didn't matter. And so I, I believe it in two for two reasons. Number one, day in and day out, teachers are the ones on the ground who are really caring for students, helping them learn, helping them kind of find ways to engage. And then big picture, you know, there are kind of, those of us who are in the support space now of supporting teachers, teachers are still the ones who have to make it all come to life. And so I, I just don't think you, I don't think we should think about any of our work without thinking about the interactions between teachers and kids, because that's where, that's where the movement's gonna happen. And quite frankly, that's all, what matters most. I'm smiling because 
the way you talk about education and what makes you effective, frankly, is that you are the real deal. You've walked in the shoes of an educator. Your understanding of the related joys and challenges is real because you've been there. And regardless of the additional roles that you've held, the experience is what grounds you and informs the good decisions that you make. But I want to put you on the spot. Um, speaking of real, can you share some teacher mistakes that you've made? What lessons did you have to learn the hard way that uh, uh, you know you grew from? So many, <laughs> so many. <laughs> I think I just alluded to one. This I, is the the Dr. Moody confessional. Yes, <laughs> I, I mean I. Maybe I, I often refer to as a regret. I don't know that I know any better, but I think one of my biggest misconceptions very early on was I, I really believed that kind of what was going outside of school sometimes trumped what could happen inside of school. And I think it, if you believe that as an educator, it gives you this, it kind of releases you from the pressure of feeling like you have to be all for your students. And I wish. I wish I didn't have that mindset at moments in my career, especially kind of as a young teacher. Um, I think, yeah, I think I, I think I, when I think about equity specifically, as we think about this work, you know, as one example, I thought it was so cutting edge because I was like trying to understand the culture of my students and make sure I had diverse voices of authors. I never thought about my own whiteness and kind of like as a white teacher, you know, what does that mean relative to the decisions I'm making, those interactions? It's always, it was always about the other, right? It wasn't about me, it was about kind of my students. And that felt right to me at the time. I felt like I'm focused on my students. That's what I've been told to do and that's what I should be doing. And I was never challenged kind of by myself or by anyone around me to say like, what about you? Like kind of, you know, what misconceptions are you walking in with? Like how has your lived experience, how is that impacting the way you're interacting with your students, the way you're picking an author, whatever it may be. So that's a big one is, and and that's why I think I, I'm so all in on the work I do today, especially in the equity work in that space is because I wanna go back to those early days and with the brain I have now and see like, what would I do different? Like how many different decisions would I make in the moments? We have been making progress in education. There, there have been some, aspects of education that have evolved. There's a long way to go, but uh, we know that over the past several years, what is it, 45 or more states have revised their educator evaluation practices. We're looking at more frequent observation, better frameworks, better rubrics, uh, more intensive training. What still needs to happen? Yeah, I've, I've been in the evaluation space a long time. We've built evaluation systems for a lot of school districts. And I, I resisted even the word evaluation at first because mm -hmm. people feel a certain way about evaluation, right? It never feels good. Um, and I was struggling because when I moved it to be a school administrator and then a district administrator, evaluation was the only time we were collecting data on practice. And I was learning a lot about my teachers, but it was in this weird environment where we couldn't use it to grow. We had to use it to evaluate or to assess. And so part of the reason that we jumped two feet and you know right into the deep end with evaluation was I have this still, and, you know, and it's a decade now and I we're not there yet, but I have this dream that like evaluation and professional development coaching won't be two different things, but it'll be part of the same process, mm -hmm. right? Evaluation, when you talk about evaluating, like what you we meet with the teacher in advance, we watch the teacher teach, we meet with them and give them feedback. 
I, when I ask school leaders about coaching, they're like, well, I watched the teacher, you know, I meet with the teacher. I watch yeah, same exact same thing, you know, process. yeah, it's coaching by a different name or, you know, coaching is evaluation by a different name, but we don't think of assessment as being so punitive with students. You know, we talk a lot about assessment for students being a way for teachers to get feedback on the effectiveness of their instruction. But for some reason, we divorce ourselves from those that construct when we become adults in the system, right? And all of a sudden now, like what was good for students in terms of assessment is not good for adults. And I just don't believe that. Um, I don't think we're there yet. I think there's a long way to go. And I still think evaluation, you know, is a dirty word in many places or, and I don't think people trust the intent of evaluation to be about growth because there are stakes attached to it. And so my hope and kind of what I would love to see is us to talk more about the work and less about kind of giving it a title. So, you know, if our work is about supporting teachers, we need to watch them teach. We need to provide good, solid feedback that's actionable kind of right away. That can be happening in an evaluation system or a coaching environment, peer-to-peer. -peer. It can happen with an evaluator. It doesn't really matter. I think we should be talking about how we better supporting the educators in our systems and how we're building processes for support that meet them where they're at, they're really flexible, that are very classroom-based, job-embedded, but really kind of help us all grow together rather than feel like we're assigning a score and kind of moving on, which is like where I fear evaluation stays in many cases and doesn't kind of grow into, it doesn't deliver on the promise of improving practice because it's not viewed as a strategy to improve practice, it's viewed as a strategy kind of, it's more punitive in nature. When you co-founded the Insight Education Group, the idea of a gotcha was, was uh, you were intending to push away that idea of, mm -hmm. of gotcha. Tell me about that. Yeah, we, we even, uh, you know, when we launched our video-based observation platform, our tagline was growth versus gotcha, because gotcha was really, and it resonated, like people really understood it. Anyone who's been evaluated, you know, either you don't get evaluated at all, <laughs> you know, and you get no feedback, which was my experience for a lot of years too. Or if you are, you know, oftentimes it's felt as punitive or kind of a gotcha game. And it's often being, you know, it's not lost on me too that the systems are stood up and supported. You know, the evaluators, oftentimes school leaders, right, who haven't been in a classroom for a long time. I think back when I was a principal and I was evaluating the, the physics teacher. I've never taken a physics class in my life, um, despite kind of having my doctor. I've been through a whole lot of school. How was I qualified to evaluate the physics teacher? You know, in high school, I wasn't, but I had to because I'm the laughing. Job. Same level of education, never taken a physics class. Yeah, right. But I had to. I needed to help that physics teacher improve. You know, it just didn't work. Right. So we had to start thinking differently about what does that mean? Like, is there, is there, is the relationship, a support relationship, a coach or a school leader, should it really be a one-to-one? -one? I don't think so. I think a teacher should have a network of support. Like I always talk about coaching about your, we should build a coaching ecosystem, not assign you a coach. Um, the coach can facilitate you in that ecosystem, but you should be getting coaching from your peers. You, you can coach yourself, video, take video of your own practice and watch it. That's coaching to me. You know, watching each other teach both in person and via video, that's coaching too. And then a coach in that more formal engagement, that could be coaching as well. But I think it's, it's about broadening our definitions and kind of letting go of some of the more traditional structures we have in place. And those structures are easy because it's easier to implement, right? It's easier to say, here's your coach. <laughs> You're hired to be a coach. Off go you coach go. this group of teachers and make them better. It's much harder to say, you know, as a coach, we want you to facilitate this work, but you're not the only person. We need you to help 
peer-to-peer -peer collaboration. You should be facilitating PLCs, bring student work to the table. There's all kinds of things you can be doing as a coach. Those systems are much harder to implement. They're even hard to design and, and, and at scale, you know, it might be easy in a school, but then when you're trying to go to, we had 135 schools in DC, it was really hard to figure out what's coaching going to look like across all those schools and they had really different needs. And so it, you know, to me, it all goes back to kind of how we're being more thoughtful about being learners in, in the space and, and designing with the end in mind in ways that are flexible enough that we can kind of pivot in a moment's notice and give, and just meet people where they're at, students and educators alike. If we know that scope and scale is messy, what advice can you give to the individual teacher who knows that their support network should feel and function differently than it does right now? What can one person do? I think, you know, I think in the absence of a, being situated in a system that's getting it done, you might need to start building it yourself. You know, find a find a colleague or two who you feel like, huh, they're, you know, I've seen them teach or I know about their teaching or I, there's something I want to learn. And we can start to create those informal networks. There are lots of tools out there now too that can help. I mean, we have tools too, you know, video observation platforms and stuff. So I think there are lots of ways teachers can engage now that just wasn't the case when probably you and I were new teachers too, it was much more in-person face-to-face and that's just not the world we live in anymore. Some, sometimes you just have to kind of create your own path or chart your own path forward and figure out what you want and figure out how to go get it and kind of take Don't the, wait, don't wait for someone no. else to do it. Start, start somehow. You'll be waiting forever. I, I really believe that you, you probably be waiting forever if you're really going to sit around and wait. So, but I, but I would say too, like, I don't want this to come off as me saying like, go figure it out on your own either. I think, I think there's some room then in that space for, I think educators should be pushing up. You know, I always talk with our team. I always talk about like, you're going to be really successful here if you can manage up. And that means you got to tell me what I'm doing wrong. You got to help me understand how to help you better. And I think teachers could have more voice with school districts and even school leaders around like, this is what we need, or this is what's working for me. You know, be vocal about what working, what's working as well as what's not working, because that's where we're all going to learn. Like, let's not just complain when something's not working and be silent when it's working. If stuff's working, let, let's elevate that too, because maybe others can learn from it. But we have to push on the systems, and that means you're going to have to push up a little bit and kind of challenge folks in schools and districts to maybe think a little bit differently about the type of support they're providing. That's a, a good point about pushing up and an important message for us to hear, especially with the reminder that it doesn't have to be negative. Right. We have probably if each of us shared a best practice or strategy that we've been using to improve our teaching practice collectively, that could really be something. Sure. And then yeah. pushed up if it could be systematized uh, and, and shared, we could move the dial faster. We for sure could. And we have a lot more resources at our fingertips now to do the sharing. <laughs> it does, I, yeah, I don't have to wait till summer when I go to the, you know, big cafeteria at my middle school and <laughs> listen to someone tell me how to teach better. I can do it in a moment's notice, kind of in real time now. People have learned how to use uh, tools and technology. People have learned how to work asynchronously and make it yeah. meaningful. And we've got to carry that forward. Yeah, I think we, yeah, I think we, you know, as hard as the last two years have been, especially in classrooms for teachers and school leaders, they've been grueling. And I understand that. I do think there's some lessons we've learned and I am excited as painful as it's been. I do think there's, I'm hopeful and I'm cautiously optimistic that, you know, there's no, that we don't need to go back to business as usual. 
because we did learn how to interact with each, with each other and with our students in different ways too. It also kind of pushed us to just think differently about stuff that we had been doing for a really long time that even worked, right? Like <laughs> teaching, right? Like teaching online is very different than teaching in a classroom. And so we, we've built skill sets that we built out of necessity, really quite frankly, it felt like out of survival, right? Like we just got to get through this week and we got through this year, which turned into two years. But but there's some nuggets in there that I think could be really valuable for us to hold on to. And so I hope that I hope that in our desire to just be post-pandemic and like out of all the mess that we don't forget and lose sight of the fact that there were some gems in there that really could really could be good for kids. Dr. Michael Moody, thank you for sharing this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Talk about how things have been shaken up a little bit and uh, hopefully they don't land as they were. There's no going back. Well, it's our job to make sure we don't go back. So we're all I, in it together. I appreciate your joining me. We want to uh, push against the status quo and improve teaching because we know it makes all the difference in student learning. To my fellow educators, thank you for joining. You can find the links that Dr. Moody and I discussed in the show notes or at teachingchannel.com slash podcast. If you leave us a rating and review on whatever podcast listening app you use, it will help more educators to find us. And I sure would appreciate it. I'll see you again soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.